Let us go before the Lord and ask Him to bless the preaching of His Word. Let us pray. O God and our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock, our nearest kinsman, Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, just as a reminder... I want to continue to help us to remember why we are studying what we are studying each Sunday. We are in the common era, or the church era of the church season, hence green. That's us. We're green. We're growing in God. And I want us to remember the Great Commission. We are to what? Because Jesus sits on the throne, is ascended into heaven, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. We are to go and make disciples, baptizing them. And so often, again, we leave it right there, and we fail to look at the next phrase, which is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And here we are today going to do our study on the seventh word. But I want us to remember that we have been studying the Ten Commandments, not as commandments, but as the very words of God. Exodus 20, verse 1, again tells us, And God spoke all these words. And of course, throughout the, the ten words, it's not just commands. There's imperatives, declarations, warnings, and promises. We see that the very personal God, and again, you say, Pastor Dan, here we are, we're in week seven, and you keep telling us these things. I want you to know that God himself spoke these words to his people. And we are his people. But he himself, it says in these ten words, Yahweh your God, eight times. And it says, well it says Yahweh eight times and Yahweh your God five times. We need to recognize that he gave us his personal name. And in fact, he not only did that, but he said, I am your God. And of course, there are two groups in this. There are those that reflect our direct relationship to God, right? All those that are about no idols, no gods before me, all of those. In fact, even honor the Sabbath. Don't carry my name in a way that's dishonoring to me. All of those honoring the Sabbath. And we also learn the association of how honoring our fathers and mothers, both those immediate and those in generations, are all part of God's plan that is unfolding that God has chosen for you and I. And we are to honor them. Now that is not to say that we are simply to take their sins on and say, yep, I'm going to keep doing that. But rather we are to remember that that was God's foreordained plan for you and I. Last week we learned about the sixth word, and looking at how we are not simply to not take a life, but we are called to preserve life for fruitfulness. That life may be fruitful, not just in begatting children, but certainly that, but also so that we are to make disciples and be fruitful in all that we do, fruitful in our work. We are preserving life to be fruitful in our families, fruitful in the community, fruitful in every way, that is the call of preserving life. Now today, we're going to consider the seventh word. And we will see that God has created 
has a created purpose for all people, for everyone in this room. We are called to be homo adorians, that is, worshipers of the Almighty, worshiping man. We are to bring glory to God by being living symbols of God's holiness through the gospel image of the Lord Jesus Christ as the bridegroom and we his people, the church, the bride. Now this is really something that, again, I, we talked about this last week. We just have two words in this word or commandment. There's the negative, you shall not commit, or you shouldn't do. That's all just a negative word in the Hebrew. And then adultery. And again, I'll remind you that I struggle with the same thing as I like to keep things simple. And I don't really like to get into the depth of things. Because when somebody is asking something of me, I want to do the very minimal that's required of me. So if I ask too many questions, I find out there's much more there. So here today, we're going to ask those questions. Because I, if I were to say to most of you in this room, what is adultery, you could give me a basic answer. And I want us to understand the holiness of God in the sexual union and what is happening here. I was speaking with someone not too long ago about this very subject, and I said the more that I have studied for this sermon this week, the smaller and smaller I have felt. The holiness and righteousness of God, we don't bear up, we don't consider, we do not hold to. If you look at the current affairs about sex in our culture, we recognize that there's, quote, they're calling it a revolution. But when you recognize that this is about God's call to us to live out his message of gospel to the world, this is simply the same attack that happened in the garden, a corruption of what God has called us to. Many churches in the U.S. adopt their views of sexuality to fit into the popular view of modern sexual ideas. Unfortunately, most Protestant churches have long ago abandoned views on contraception and divorce, abortion, and cohabitation. And even now, what is the big raising question? What is a man and what is a woman? The church has surrendered to the state, that is the government. And the state was happy about this. They have usurped the familial obligations like teaching sexuality and caring for our children. Today, sex in our culture and in our church in, churches has become focused on everyone's right to pleasure. Such sexual ethics are about each person's ability to decide their own identity. Now, people of God, when we were talking about the, the commandment, about not taking the Lord's name in vain, we specifically talked about carrying God's name in a way that causes the, the unbelievers to blaspheme God. We are called, in this word, not to commit adultery and to have faithfulness in sexuality, 
And by the way we have carried ourselves, the world is blaspheming God. And identity is everything. We've talked about this again and again, about bearing up the identity of God. What is our identity? Our identity is that which God has given us through creation and through baptism. When we go to that font and we baptize people, you are a Christian. You belong to God. I belong to God. Everyone in this room, from the smallest of children to the most aged among us, belong to God. Our identity is in God's created order and in His Son's name. Today, if you were to go and Google sexual identity, it's defined as this. It's how one thinks of oneself in terms of whom one is romantically or sexually attracted. Sexual identity may also refer to sexual orientation identity. And of course, we know all of the gender confusion where they are, everyone wants to be their own God and choose who they are. Now you might be saying, Pastor, there's children in the room. And I'm saying, praise God for that. We are thankful for the sounds of God's covenant. Listen, people of God. When the church is silent on any subject, we adopt the views of the culture around us. God, by His Word, treats sexuality as a matter of public concern. Too long has the church adopted Victorian attitudes, and they've, they've created this false sense of purity, creating purity culture discussions and this thing and that thing and all these other things. But when we look back at Victorian, for those of you that don't know, the false piety of Victorian properness and the hiding and shunning of sexuality, when you look at the, the architecture of the day and decorating your home from the Victorian era, all the tablecloths ran low to the floor because they were worried that somehow the legs of the tables were going to cause people to have lust because the leg and ankles would be exposed of the table. What foolishness. They wanted to hide and move sexuality out of the limelight. To what end? So that they could do whatever they wanted in the shadows. Moms, dads, if you don't talk about it, if you don't read, and all of us, if we don't read those sections of the scriptures with our children, or even worse, don't preach or teach it in our churches, we are guilty to surrendering this very holy thing of sexual union to the unbelieving pagans. And they are and have corrupted God's true purposes. Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, God gives us a gift of being male or female. And as one commentator puts it, it is inscribed on and in our very bodies. This is not up for discussion. God said so. God established marriage in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God at creation intended this, and it is a holy thing made by God. What have we done? We have turned marriage into legal paperwork of the state. 
and it is totally disconnected to God and His church. Now, I've said all these things. We're all rah-rah so far, I hope. And now we're going to get into the meat of what God's Word teaches us. So we all like good illustrations, right? I mentioned before symbolism and typology and how when we see things, what it teaches us. And God has been doing this since the beginning of creation, teaching us all things about himself, as we see in Romans, from all of the created order, right? And so here we're going to talk about a few things, and I promise you, probably for the first five or six minutes, you're going to be, where in the world are you in connection to this? Bear with me. Let us look at God's word. Let us have God explain to us, through his created order, the holiness of marriage, of the sexual union, and our mission to the world through it. So, You've heard me talk about, whether it's been in Sunday school or from the pulpit, God using the symbolism of the Garden of Eden to teach us about the temple and worship. And we've talked about it in different settings in different places. So there's the Garden of Eden, the land of Eden, and the world. That is the sanctuary, the land, and the ends of the earth, or the temple, Israel, and the Gentiles. So I'm going to say that one more time so that we can again start to see this a little bit. God taught us that he came down into the Garden of Eden and this was his place of fellowship from his throne into the world in the Garden of Eden. And they were, Adam and Eve were to be there and be taught and instructed, eat of the, the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil at the appropriate time and then go into the land and be fruitful and very successful and not be under the curse. But they sinned, they disobeyed God, and they were put out of the garden and placed in the land. And of course, they were called to take dominion of the entire world and be fruitful and multiply and fill it. Again, we see this later on in the history of the people of Israel where God sets up his sanctuary and the tabernacle and then the temple, the land and the ends of the earth. And again, it's temple. Israel is the land. The Gentiles are the world. And again, you're saying, boy, you're driving this down. What does this have to do? Let us consider that as God had gave all these instructions to his people at Sinai, and then a week, uh, then a week or so later with more instruction, and then a year later with lots more in Leviticus, and then almost 40 years later when when. Moses is teaching in Deuteronomy and giving a great sermon on all the ten words, and he's encapsulating all of the first four books of the Torah, and he's teaching it. He's using all of this symbolism and all of these things to teach, and to what end? He says in Deuteronomy 6, I mentioned this before the service, that when your children ask you, what does this all mean? It is so that we are taught and instructed on how to live and glorifying God, and we are learning all kinds of things. All kinds of things. In Leviticus chapter 19, in verse 19, it says this. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed. Nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. 
Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine and who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom, for there shall be a scourging, but they shall not be put to death because she was not free. Now, I'm going to tell you, you read that passage and you're like, that is fuzzy as I don't know what. We're talking about animals, livestock, sowing your field with mixed seed, and then garments of linen and wool. And then all of a sudden, now we're talking about a sexual union between two people. What does that have to do with the sky being blue? Can we be for real for a minute? That's fuzzy. That's unclear. This is why we need to look at the whole of scriptures. God moves from the symbolic of the animals, the livestock being mixed, to the seed being mixed, to the linen, the clothing being mixed, right? Two, what does that look like when we live? Oh, this has something to do with stuff not being mixed in the sexual union and coming together as men and women. Well, that's clear, right? When the husband and wife become one flesh, they are mixing. This is God's plan for something to be mixed. And we would just mix anything. We are going against and assaulting holiness. Now we could get down in the weeds. And we could spend hours and hours talking about exactly how that played out for the people of Israel. And what this means for us today. What applies, what doesn't. But we, we need to remember that we are being taught by the created order to. To understanding God and our relationship with Him. Adultery is a forbidden mixture. If suddenly I start saying to you, mixed seed and adultery, we kind of get that. If I say, what about taking an ox and a donkey and putting them together and sowing in a field, mixing them that way, right? You say, well, I don't know, that one might not be as clear to me. Well, oxen were clean animals, sacrificially, and donkeys were unclean. Paul uses this illustration later on in the New Testament where he talks about don't be unequally yoked. And, of course, we see a little bit more clearly, perhaps, in Deuteronomy 22, where uh, Moses is is trying to expand and make this more clear. And he says this in verse 9, You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seeds, lest... The yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts such as wool and linen mixed together. You shall make tassels on the four corners of your clothing to cover yourself. Again, you're going, we are so fuzzy. First thing I want to tell you is there's a problem in that verse. The word that's that's translated there as it talks about those things being defiled that word in Hebrew shows up, kadash, 172 times in the Old Testament. And you know what? 171 times it means sanctify, hallow, dedicate, holy, consecrate, purify. And this one time, for some reason, they're looking at it and they're saying, ah, this sounds like it's not a good thing, so let's put that in there. Defiled. I'm sorry. If you look at this, that's just not a good translation here. So what it should read about those things is those things 
are holy. When we mix things, God mixes man and woman together. It's a holy thing. It's a holy thing. We can find other passages when you say, when you're looking at the clothing part, where God says in Ezekiel 44 that he tells the priests that they're going to enter his sanctuary. And when they come near to me, that they are going to go in and they're going to have mixed clothes on. Who's the only people that in Israel that could wear mixed clothing? The priests. You see, they had linen and then they had these dyed things in there. They had gold in there and blue. You, you, you have difficulty keeping the blue into, into linen. That's wool. And if you're not sure if that's true, when he talks about making gold thread, taking gold and making thread, that in fact is clearly different. By the way, that mixture is what? Talk about wool, talk about gold, when we talk about linen, that's animal, mineral, vegetable, right? God is putting that all together. And what, what God is saying is here, when I put things together and I mix them, they become holy. They become holy. And I, I bring all this up because I want us to understand this, that when God makes something holy, he comes down and checks it out. It is a violation of holy things when we mix things improperly. And it brings death. It brings death. We know that death entered the world when Adam sinned, right? We know that when those who didn't follow the directions of how to carry the ark touched holy things, judgment fell. God gives judicial penalties ranging from you have to get married and with financial consequences all the way to the death penalty. We have far too long devalued marriage and we have treated the marriage bed as simply pleasures to be sought without God being present. God tells us in Deuteronomy 23 that unholy things are not to enter into the assembly of Yahweh. In Deuteronomy 23:14 it says this, for Yahweh your God walks in the midst of the camp when he called them together those covenant people. He brought them together and he is their husband and he comes down and every time God sets something up as holy, he comes there. You see, we have detached sexuality and the sexual union totally away from the fact that this is God's plan. It is a holy union made before God. And every time somebody does it, God comes down. And he's looking. And when God comes, it says in Deuteronomy 23, 14, that he walks in the midst of the camp to deliver you and to give your enemies over to you. It's a good thing. But, he is to come down there and he is looking to make sure there is no unclean thing among you because he will turn away. When things are mixed and made holy, God comes to look around and to judge, bringing blessings or curses. God always shows up when the sexual union happens. He brings blessings or curses. Praise God, we can confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us. But these sins of adultery 
and sex seized before the right time are violations of the holy things of God. Not mere sins, not inadvertent sins, but in fact high-handed sins or trespasses. Now, I would encourage you, if you have more questions, and there's a lot there, come talk to me at another time. That's kind of why I did a pre-setup this morning during announcements. But if you look in your outline, you see that this brings us to the idea of idolatry, where adultery is assault against God and His image bearers and against what God is teaching us. And it moves us clearly from understanding physical adultery as assaults against the physical image of God, to assaulting God Himself. In Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, it says, Then I saw for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. God dealt with Israel. This is after the split of the two kingdoms. And even though God brought judgment to Israel, Judah kept doing it too, and they suffered judgment. So it came to pass, talking about Judah, that her casual harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. That's idolatry. In Ezekiel 23, verse 37, again, the prophets are telling us, For they have committed adultery, and the blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols, and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. Adultery is not merely familial and social catastrophe. It's an assault on God's image. Sexual sins tell lies about the Creator. Multiple sexual partners speak lies about how God loves His one bride. Homosexuality attacks the unity of the created order. We can go on and look through all of the prophets. Even the entire book of Hosea is about this subject. But even Jesus uses this language. In Matthew 12, 39, Jesus says this, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Again, in Matthew 16, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And of course, in Mark 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and uh, sinful generation, Jesus himself, along with the prophets and all that God is teaching, is telling us about sexual faithfulness, And that when we fall into that, we're assaulting not only a person, but God himself is showing up. And holiness, his holiness is there. And we are filled with idolatry. If you look in your outline, I have sex, ethics, and divorce. I'm going to give the 50,000 foot view because there's so much to be said here. But in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. He's talking about holiness in reference to your relationship and my relationship to Him. And then he goes on, beginning in verse 9, and he warns us in verses 9 and 10 about not committing adultery. 
And in verses 11 and 12, he talks and sets out that incest is wrong. At verse 13, he prohibits homosexuality. We see later on in Leviticus 20, verse 15, and Leviticus 20, 16, we see that he bans bestiality. And he lays out all kinds of things. And then he comes back again and says, if you didn't get it about incest, I'm going to spend another five verses in verses 17 through 22. And he says all of these things, he's talking about sexual guidelines and what is to be followed and how we are to live in this way. And then in verse 20 of Leviticus, or verse 22 of Leviticus 20, he says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them in the land where I am bringing you to dwell so that I may not vomit you out. He goes on later down and says, I have separated you from the peoples to distinguish you between... Uh, you shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make for yourselves any abominable beast or bird. God, again, takes sexuality and says, okay, the reason I've set up all of these additional rules in the scriptures is to teach you about how to live your life so that you may worship me and glorify me in all that you do. Those were the purposes. It wasn't that Jesus or that the Lord was trying to make the people of Israel weird and, and, and just different to be different. He had a message of truth he was giving. Now I mentioned divorce in here and even God in that passage uh, that I read earlier that he issued uh, a certificate of divorce to Israel. We see that, is, that divorce is given not just for any reason, as, as those who question Jesus about this later, but because of uncleanness, that is, indecency or improper behavior, adulterous actions, hateful and wicked abuse. And of course, when they ask Jesus, it's funny, you look at Matthew, both in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, when Jesus speaks on these things, they're always, the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel are always trying to wiggle out and find ways to get around things. But Jesus deals with this at two separate times, in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. And he says, there are limits to this. Mostly for those trying to wiggle out, you can't just wiggle out. And of course, when they questioned him in Matthew 19, and they said, well, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And he's like... Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, because of your adulterous hearts, because of the things that you were doing, permitted you to divorce your wives. But it had nothing to do with simply putting her away for any reason. It had to do because of unfaithfulness. And Jesus himself says, but from the beginning, it was not so. And he speaks clearly to that. You know, we often struggle to, to reconcile what we see in the Old Testament. We talked about it last week as what we see in Old Testament law and what Jesus says in New Testament requirements. But I want to remind you that Jesus himself said in Matthew, 15, or Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And what does Jesus actually do when he deals with all these laws in in uh, Matthew chapter 5, what he actually does is he closes all the perceived loopholes. In verse 27 of Matthew 5, it says, You've heard 
that it said uh, to, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with his heart. You see, they had then tried to say, okay, there's two different parts to my life. There's my physical life and there's my spiritual life. And as long as my spiritual life's okay, it doesn't matter what I do in my physical life. That's paganism, people. That's paganism. This duality of our spiritual of our lives being spiritual and physical. No, we are one being. How do we know this? God created us that way in the beginning in fellowship with Him. Death enters the world, and when God restores all things at the very end, we have physical bodies. And we are moving about in the physical world of heaven and earth. It all comes together in that way. There's no separate two sides. It is all connected. And Jesus goes on and says, This is so serious that if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Be careful. Be careful. We are not to fuel our desire. There is only one place for the sexual union. And when we commit adultery, we are physically assaulting God's image and himself as well. You know, the, there's something else here in all that, that, that we have, is that in general, God's ordinary purpose, or one of God's ordinary purposes in the marriage sexual union is to be image-forming, right? God called us to be fruitful and multiply, but we, we often want to disconnect everything. And, you know, I, I'm not up here saying that there's no place for some type of contraception. But what I am telling you is this, that God had these things in mind, and we must be very careful. We have to recognize that, first of all, this is a holy thing of God, sexual union and then also that we are in what god has created us to do creating eternal beings eternal beings and of course we see in romans there is there is clear direction i'm just trying to show us that there is no uh, uh, permission in the new testament for this but in romans 13 you shall not commit adultery that's, of course, where Paul is repeating the commandments. And in Galatians 5, when it's making the distinguishing between the fruits of the Spirit and the things that are against God, the works of the flesh, that is to say the sinful nature are evident, which are, what's the first one? Adultery, followed by fornication, followed by uncleanness and lewdness and all these other things. And, and then right behind all this sexual stuff is idolatry. They're connected. They are connected. Just as the people of Israel were priests of the world and were not to carry God's name in a way that causes the world to blaspheme God, we are instructing the world in a priestly role about Christ and His church in our marriages. Ephesians 5.25 tells us, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Therefore, if you hate your wife, 
you hate yourself. If you betray your wife, you betray yourself. Why? Well, most importantly, you are betraying your relationship with God Almighty. For we are members of one body, of His flesh and His bones. Remember this, it says this, he's quoting from Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I am speaking of Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God tells us that we are preaching to the world and through the faithfulness of our marriages, of our sexual activity. Do not assault God. Do not assault His images that He has given us. And if you're still not with me, if you're still not sure, Revelations chapter 19, beginning in verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. People of God, we are called by Christ on that last day to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb as his bride. Real quick, a quick theology here about our service. When we, when we come up here and your elders are up here and we're leading you, we are speaking for Christ to you. And every one of you, whether man, woman, or child, you are the bride of Christ. That's why there's a double judgment for us who come up here. This is an awesome and frankly a terrible and fearful thing at times. If you don't think that I don't wrestle about what to say and how to say it, you haven't gotten to know me yet. Truth is, I'm called by God to share His truth with you, to be faithful. And we together are the bride of Christ. And he finishes this passage in Revelations. These are the true sayings of God. The true sayings of God. Let us rejoice in this. I do want to say this. If, if, if you feel like, man, I'm cut up, I'm broken. These things have exposed me in some way. Confess your sins. Now, we've confessed this morning. But as we learn of our sins, confess them and be made right to God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and your truth. We pray, our Father, that the church of our time may rouse itself from its slumber and become a living church, a church strong in your word, in your law, your covenant, and your grace, to establish your dominion to the ends of the earth. Guide us towards this purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.